Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Archbishop Thomas Beckett and his clerics are just sitting down for lunch in Canterbury Cathedral, near the southeast tip of England. It's December the 29th, 1170, and the cathedral is still decked out for Christmas, candles burning to fight the weak light of the short winter days, and the rich, sweet smell of incense hanging heavy on the air. This is the Middle Ages, so there's no Santa Claus or Christmas trees around, but it's still a major occasion, a time of joy and celebration of the birth of baby Jesus. Yet today, the clerics in the cathedral are not feeling very festive. The atmosphere at the table is tense. For six years, Archbishop Becket has been involved in a running feud with the Plantagenet King of England, Henry II. Now, at Christmas time, their bitter squabble is finally coming to a dangerous head. For most of those six turbulent years, Becket has been in exile from the Plantagenet lands after Henry tried to throw him in prison. But he's recently returned to England, stirring up as much trouble as he can for Henry and his supporters. Becket's had papers drawn up by the Pope, excommunicating three senior English bishops who stayed loyal to Henry. Excommunicating means formally casting them out of the church and, even worse, condemning them to the pains of hell when they die. He's been threatening to do the same to royal officers who've been seizing church lands and properties. And to cap it all off, four days ago, on Christmas Day, Becket stood in the pulpit before a packed cathedral and absolutely ripped Henry to shreds. He preached a sermon that everyone knew was just a thinly veiled condemnation of the king. The sermon climaxed with a call to arms in which Becket unsubtly encouraged his parishioners to persecute Henry's allies, saying that God only protects the righteous. These are all major provocations, and there's no way the news won't have got back to Henry, who's currently away in his French lands. Becket knows that, and he knows that the famously short-tempered Henry is already at his wit's end with their arguments and unlikely to react kindly. In fact, Becket is afraid that he may have finally gone too far and his life could be in real danger. He's so certain some kind of retribution is coming that he's been saying goodbye to his old friends and sending away his most loyal servants for their own safety. Becket and those of his allies who are still with him in Canterbury are bracing themselves for an assault. They don't know when it will come. They don't know what form it will take. All they know is that it's coming, and when it does, they need to be ready. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 8 murder. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use indeed? 
Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Last time we saw Beckett, he was scurrying away from Northampton Castle in the dead of night in 1164. He'd just been through the ordeal of a show trial overseen by Henry II that had found him guilty of misconduct in high office. The penalty could have been life imprisonment, or at the very least, resigning as archbishop in disgrace. But Beckett had other ideas. He scarpered from England, crossed the Channel, and took refuge outside the Plantagenet Empire. What's he been doing in the six years since? Well, the short answer is driving Henry mad. He throws himself on the mercy of Louis VII, King of France, Henry's biggest political rival. Louis lets him set up a household in Soissons, northeast of Paris, and later in a monastery at Sens. Becket is kind of annoying, but Louis is happy to do anything that gives him leverage over Henry, or just the chance to wind him up. There are times when Becket gets seriously depressed. He thinks he has done the right thing, and he's still technically Archbishop. But it's hardly like he's now a perfect Archbishop for his English flock, living in exile and despised by the King, and most of the barons. He spends a lot of time praying and tormenting his body by taking freezing baths outdoors, wearing a shirt made of rough, itchy goat hair, and having his chaplain beat him three times a day until blood runs down his back. He also has some healthier pastimes. He reads a lot, studies law, and lobbies other major European leaders, especially the Pope. He's hoping he can convince them to back his cause and intervene on his behalf against Henry. But Becket doesn't exactly make things easy for himself or anyone else. He's not just railing about the constitutions of Clarendon, that's Henry's attempts to take more power from the church. He also says he won't make peace with the king until Henry agrees to all manner of increasingly unlikely demands. To purge the church of all evil customs, to restore him and his followers to their offices and possessions, and punish more or less everyone Becket doesn't like. That's a hefty shopping list, and it doesn't make a settlement easy. From time to time, an exasperated Henry agrees to try and meet Becket's demands halfway. After all, both their lives would be easier if they could just get along. But every time Henry reaches out, Becket sabotages negotiations. In 1169, Becket meets Henry in person, twice, with Henry looking to make peace so that he and King Louis of France can start planning a crusade. But on both occasions, Becket kicks up a fuss over relatively minor issues. He doesn't like the form of words he has to use to make peace with the king. He wants the king to give him the symbolic kiss of peace when Henry doesn't want to. They're literally like quarrelling lovers, each taking it in turn to refuse to kiss and make up. 
I can't get enough of this medieval bromance gone wrong, and so I'll be digging into all the details in this week's subscriber episode. But taking a step back for a second, why on earth is Beckett picking these fights with Henry? On one level, he seems to be paranoid that Henry's only offering him terms so that he can lure him back into Plantagenet territory and arrest him. On another, he seems genuinely not to want any sort of reconciliation. He likes the role of martyr. It suits him. The minute he makes a deal with Henry, that's over. Eventually, just about everyone is running out of patience with Beckett. In the summer of 1170, Henry finally gives up trying to flatter and cajole the infuriating archbishop. Henry wants to have his eldest son crowned as co-king of England. Young Henry is now 15, and this is the first step in his father's grand succession plan for the Plantagenet family. But there's a problem. By tradition, only the Archbishop of Canterbury can do that. Becket, surprise, surprise, won't play ball. So now Henry, who's done with tiptoeing around, decides to just go ahead and do it. In June, he gets the Archbishop of York and a bunch of other English bishops to perform the coronation. When Becket finds out, he's livid and he excommunicates all the bishops who've taken part. From this point on, there's really no way back. The next month, papal officers do manage to badger Henry and Becket into one more peace summit at Fréteval in northern France. They go through the motions and, under pressure from the Pope, make an uneasy peace. But as usual, Becket is totally pig-headed throughout the whole process, and the trust between the two men is well and truly broken. Becket stays out of Henry's way until December, but then he travels back to England after six years away. When he arrives, he's cheered by the ordinary people, who are glad to have their archbishop back after so long. Of course, it's not like England's a democracy in 1170. In a sense, what a bunch of cheering peasants thinks is neither here nor there. All the same, it makes Becket feel good. That emboldens him to spend Christmas slating Henry from his pulpit and getting a bit trigger-happy with his archbishop powers, excommunicating loads of people he has beef with. All of which brings us back to where we started, a nervous lunch at Canterbury Cathedral. Beckett and his small circle of die-hard supporters realising he might, finally, have gone too far. They're right, he has and Henry's revenge is hurtling in their direction. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. What miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household, who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born clerk? No, that isn't a quote from Shakespeare. These are Henry's words when he learns what Beckett has been up to in England. He's often misquoted. The folklore version of his outburst is, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? The difference between those two statements is important. The second, urban myth version, is pretty much an open invitation. Henry's looking round the court and asking which of the people there is man enough to do Beckett in. The first version is more ambiguous. In the most generous reading, he's just angry and taking it out on the people around him. And it's plausibly no more than that. Beckett's gone even more rogue than usual, and the whole world is to blame. Now, you may well be thinking I'm being much too kind to Henry. After all, He's not a man who generally shies away from violence, but I do think it's important to be clear about who said what in this story, because the consequences were serious. Deadly serious. When Henry throws his toys out of the pram and shouts that fateful line, he's holding his own Christmas court at a place called Bure-le-Roi, quite close to the coast of Normandy. He's already instructed a group of his courtiers to prepare to go to England and reason with Beckett, arresting him if necessary. But four of the people at that court decide they'd rather not be considered miserable drones and traitors, and head off on a mission of their own, ahead of the official delegation. Their names are Reginald Fitzurse, William de Tracy, Hugh de Morville and Richard Brito, all loyal members of Henry's court. And no sooner are those words out of the king's mouth than the four knights take a ship to England. They gather up a dozen or more other heavies and ride straight to Canterbury Cathedral. They arrive at about 2pm on December the 29th. Beckett and his closest advisers have had some lunch and are relaxing in the archbishop's private chambers. The cathedral isn't just a big church, it's a huge complex with living quarters, communal dining rooms, libraries and offices. It's also pretty much the holiest place in England. Already more than 500 years old at this point, the cathedral was founded by St Augustine when he first came to bestow Christianity on the heathen English. But all this sacred symbolism is lost on the gang of angry knights currently forcing their way in. The main four quickly find their way to Beckett's rooms. When they burst in, there's something close to panic among Beckett's advisers, but the Archbishop himself stays calm. He doesn't even get up to greet the four knights. And when they start haranguing him about all the things he's done to needle King Henry, he argues back in his usual pompous and irritating way. At this point, things still might have gone off peacefully. But as the argument between Beckett and the four knights develops, employees of the cathedral start trying to push their way into the room. The tension 
ratchets up. The knights storm out of the room and go to gather backup. Beckett's advisers hustle him out of his chambers and towards the main building of the cathedral, the huge cavernous church, where he's theoretically safe from arrest or violence. Holy sites like this are places of sanctuary. But by now, everyone is angry, and before long, the knights have caught up with Beckett. They don't give a monkeys about sanctuary. They demand one last time that Beckett backs down and withdraws his excommunication of the English bishops. He refuses, so Reginald Fitzurse tries to arrest him, manhandling him and trying to stick him on William de Tracy's shoulders in a sort of fireman's lift. Picture the scene. This is one of the most hallowed places in the medieval world, and two knights in full armour have got the Archbishop of Canterbury scrambling around in their arms. One of them is attempting to carry Becket away as if he's a kid having a tantrum. Come with me, Your Grace. You need some time to cool off. By now, it's chaos. Becket struggles, and in the confusion, Fitzurse, de Tracy and Brito pull their swords and lay into him. The first sword swipe takes off the top of Beckett's head like a boiled egg. Beckett just has time to cry out, commending his soul to God. Then he's on the ground, and the blows rain down. Brito runs him through, and a fifth man, a thug called Hugh de Horsey, mashes Beckett's brains into the cathedral floor. In terms of shock value, it's not far off a 12th century assassination of JFK. And the knights know it. They flee the cathedral, and once they're gone, Beckett's friends and the monks and clerics of Canterbury start clearing up. They put Beckett's body in a marble tomb, but there's no funeral, because the cathedral has been sullied by the blood spilled. We can only begin to imagine how shocked, sickened and traumatised they were. Beckett was their friend, and in many ways, their hero. Several of them would go on to write vivid accounts of his life and death in tribute. They weren't the only ones who were shocked. Within hours, word of the appalling crime has started to race around England. The Archbishop has been murdered in his own cathedral by men apparently acting for King Henry. When word reaches the King, he claims to be horrified and distraught. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But one thing's for certain, he's in big trouble. In fact, he's gone from being the most powerful man in Western Europe to the most notorious and despised. Nothing is going to be simple for the Plantagenets ever again. If you're craving more Plantagenet drama now, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time we're going to dive into the detail of Henry and Beckett's doomed bromance, and how it ended up in murder. And on top of that, as a subscriber you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. 
It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.